0: And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 75 today. Uh, we have Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell. Dr. Eben Alexander is a Harvard- trained neurosurgeon and a New York Times best-selling author of the books "Proof of Heaven: Map of Heaven." and his latest book with co-author Karen Newell, Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, Karen is also the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. How are you guys doing today?
1: Doing great. How about you? Doing well.
0: Good, good. Uh, huge fan of your book, Proof of Heaven. Um, kind of, I, I read it actually a few years ago. I was kind of going through a couple life situations and, uh, some synchronicities were happening. And, uh, after I read your book, um, it kind of reopened my mind to the spiritual side of myself. Um, I was raised Catholic, uh, but it kind of, you know, strayed away from that, you know, uh, being into science and different stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, Eben, when you, went through your situation i know that you were uh you, you said you were raised what methodist uh in your right. book but you had same thing you you're, you became a neurosurgeon and therefore were more involved with uh i guess uh day-to-day consciousness and reality like we all get stuck in uh that mm-hmm. prison from time to time but um what what going through your your whole near-death experience um it like reawoken or re you know re got you in touch with your spiritual side uh has it changed since uh you wrote the book proof of heaven or are you still kind of on that same wavelength
1: well that's that's a very very good question because it's um i would say that my uh, kind of beliefs and my understanding have been uh, uh in many ways in a state of flux over the last 10 years but it's all been uh, kind of converging towards something that I think is much closer to the truth. Um, the good news is, uh, you know, people often ask me, what do your skeptical scientific colleagues believe about this? Well, it turns out that I have many uh, scientific colleagues, especially those who are deeply into the study of consciousness, who are very into this. And the reason is the, the materialist model, you know, that is part of our conventional scientific uh, uh kind of assumption about the nature of reality that the physical world is all that exists and that the brain must therefore create consciousness one implication of course is when the brain and body die it's the end of our existence i know that to be false Uh, and there are tremendous pieces of evidence uh, that show that that is false and uh, this is something we discuss in our book living in a mindful universe is all the many many different categories of evidence that show us that the physical world is not all that exists and in many ways we should look at consciousness as something that is fundamental that the whole physical world emerges out of that consciousness which gives uh, human beings with their their spirit and their free will a lot more power in determining what unfolds in this universe so it's been a tremendous gift it's still very much a work in progress Uh, But I've come to realize, uh, especially as I did, uh, you know, in the first few months after my coma, that the old materialist or physicalist model, that that's all there is and that there's no spiritual aspect to humans or this universe, is false. And this is where the neuroscience of consciousness is leading, and that's why... Uh, This kind of message and what Karen and I share with the world and not only our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, but also in our workshops and presentations is really a much broader view of the nature of reality that I think is emerging from science right now, all in addressing relationship between brain and mind. And it's very liberating to human beings uh, where this discussion is leading.
0: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, And after reading your book, Proof of Heaven, it kind of gave me, like I said, a renewed sense of of that. Um, And I I know recently you've been getting into more of the hard science of uh, cosmology and Physics, quantum physics, and that kind of stuff. Uh, also, a big fan. We've done shows. Uh, I don't know if you know Brian Keating and his book uh, "Losing the Nobel Prize," but um, you know, you've got your skeptics, like you said. You've got your, you know, your Brian Cox and your Sean Carroll's and these modern day uh, so-called you know geniuses that are saying, "No, this is all there is, and consciousness is just a byproduct, just like how we breathe air, but we can't see it." That kind of a mm-hmm. thing. Um, but at the end of the day. Um, you know we experience things personally or at least I have that I would call you know uh, a higher power or something that you just you, something metaphysical that you can't explain or can't see um, when you do you do meditation and that kind of stuff or well,
1: yes I basically I, I uh, in the first year or two after my coma I, I pretty rapidly came to realize that the only way to have a deeper understanding of my experience was to explore consciousness. That is to meditate, to go within consciousness. And of course, many people like me before coma uh, assumed, well, what's there to explore about consciousness? Here I am living in my consciousness. I know what it is. I've explored it all my life. Well, that's not at all true. Um, What we've got running the show there is a little linguistic brain and and kind of uh, that linguistic brain with our ego and it's kind of, uh, uses of fear and uh, anxiety to drive our behaviors. That is not our consciousness. The, the deep mystery, whether you're talking about quantum physics and the nature of the observer, or you're talking about neuroscience and the hard problem of consciousness and philosophy of mind, uh, it really all boils down to the impossibility of using the physical workings of the brain to fully explain conscious awareness. And this is especially apparent when you get into the scientific world of non-local consciousness. That is the reality of things like telepathy, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, and then we start getting into near-death experiences, shared death experiences, after-death communications, and then past life memories in children indicative of reincarnation. I mean there's a huge body of scientifically studied manifestations of consciousness that go far beyond the simplistic uh, notion of of physicalism or materialism in the brain and its uh, local senses as being the only way we can glean information about the universe. Uh, And this coma journey for me has been extraordinary over the last 10 years in trying to unpack the lessons that were first presented in that uh, uh, near-death experience that I should not have had I mean that's where the neuroscientific community jumps on board with me and my story and this incredible mystery is I should have had no experience at all or, or at best just this little meager flickering of, of uh, conscious awareness in a brain soaking in pus and yet I had the most elaborate extensive ultra real and meaningful experience I've ever had in my life all at a time when my doctors had documented evidence from my neurologic exam CT and MRI scans that my neocortex was so badly inactivated, I should not have experienced anything. And that's why I think the neuroscientific community uh, is very excited about, you know, my experience and what it it shares. And I would point out uh, to those who are interested is uh, in September of 2018, in the uh, medical journal, uh, Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, Uh, A case report came out about my medical records. It took them more than two years to assemble it due to the complexity of those records and the fact that uh, uh, the, the doctors who wrote that report, who were not involved in my care, but were very interested because of the miraculous nature of my healing, uh were basically fascinated by this and uh they basically confirmed the story that i put forward in proof of heaven that i was way too ill to have experienced anything with the parts of my brain very badly damaged so i should not have been able to have a hallucination or drug effect uh and yet i had this extraordinary experience and i think that's where um where the scientific world is jumping on board with this. And of course there are tens of millions of other near death experiences out there. So they, they all demand this much bigger explanation, which I think is where this world is going now and answering those questions.
0: Absolutely. Um, we've done more than a few episodes on, uh, psychedelics and, uh, dimethyltryptamine DMT um i was just curious have you ever looked into that phenomenon in association you know in endogenous chemicals not that that would even rule out something metaphysical but maybe it's some sort of chemical gateway uh, a lot of people that are that do DMT often see these entities that are filled with love and convey messages of love Um, and that kind of stuff. And I know, uh, when people are, you know, my mom had a near death experience where she died giving birth to my sister for like three minutes. And, Mm -hmm. um, my grandfather and sister that passed away, both told her, it's not your time. Come back. You know, you have to go back and she didn't Mm want to go back. And it seems to be a common hallmark of a feeling that's more real than real. And also not wanting to come back after experiencing that. Um, so have you ever looked into that connection or do you think that, I mean, you're a neurosurgeon I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Yeah,
1: I, I think it's a fascinating connection actually. And, uh, <clears throat> I've looked into that for several years. I mean, that is, uh, you know, people would often say early on, well, this sounds like your description of your journey sounds a lot like a DMT trip, you know, like an ayahuasca experience. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think that the thing is you, you need to be very careful just for one thing, we all admit that the words we try to use to describe an NDE or that kind of extraordinary spiritual experience, the words fail miserably. Uh, it's what we call ineffability. The the fact that uh, our language is very good for describing a trip to Disney World, but not necessarily so great at describing these extraordinary spiritual journeys where you're completely outside of space and time, where many things can happen kind of at once. Uh, and, um, where the normal channels you know normally in these physical bodies were used to information say presented visual information to the eyes or sound information to the ears and it gets heavily filtered by the sensory organs and by the brain so we finally have this tiny little trickle of sensory awareness and compare that to what happens in a profound nde or similar spiritually transformative experience where basically your conscious awareness is on the other side of the veil. And it's like drinking from a fire hose, full bore, uh, primordial mind consciousness coming in. That's why when people describe, uh, say, uh, life review, which has been described in near-death experiences across all continents and cultures going back thousands of years, that life review is so complete. Mm-hmm. And it's every meaningful residual lesson of your life, for better or for worse, uh, that you relive in complete entirety, not in some vague murky fashion, but you can do it like that in earth time. And it's because there's a whole different temporal flow, what I call deep time in that realm that allows for the full flow of this kind of spiritual learning and teaching that has to do with the lessons of uh, we're here to share uh, in this world. So um, I, I think it's uh, important to understand that Uh, that reality is very different and and when I for example uh, look at uh, what people report in those drug experiences and go through some personal experience that involves uh, similar substances things like that what I come to realize is I believe that those substances open a door into similar realms but I think they create such a gigantic splash and a lot of that splash is not necessarily signal. It's more noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from our point of view, and this is something we discussed in Living in a Mindful Universe, um, sound, and especially differential frequency sound, as in sacred acoustics, which is a sound that influences the lower brainstem. That's why it's so important to acknowledge. And we explain that much more detail in the book. But most sounds we've ever heard, all the chants and anthems and hymns that people have used to get into deep transcendental states, have involved sound processing in the acoustic cortex, in the recently evolved neocortex. Uh, uh, And in human beings, those are circuits that have pretty much been refined over the last few million years, or at most 10 million years, to, to serve their current functions whereas the sacred acoustics those differential sound frequencies uh they address a very primitive part of the brain essentially a part that's more than 300 million years old and i believe it's by uh uh, initially addressing that part of the brain that's a very primitive part of the anatomy of the brain that relates it to a very early part of the functional nature of consciousness by going back that far in evolutionary biology. And that's where I believe the sound has such incredible power. In fact, there's a book that I reference in Proof of Heaven. It's called Dark Night, Early Dawn. It's by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E. He has tremendous experience uh, uh, exploring uh, LSD in particular for spiritual purposes. Uh, But he wrote a book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, Uh, several years ago where he compared his LSD spiritual work with his work using an early version of differential frequency sound. He was using something called Hemisync which had been developed by Robert Monroe which I would say is not uh, as advanced a form of binaural beat as what I find uh, Mm -hmm. in sacred acoustics. But the bottom line is in Dark Night Early Dawn with his personal experience using both sound and psychedelic drugs, he comes down a very strong proponent of sound as being a more powerful long-term catalyst to developing our relationship with this uh, primordial mind and higher soul. And I would agree with that completely. I do think it's important that the psychedelic work is being explored now. I mean, for one thing, uh, as we talk about living in a mindful universe, it makes a very clear case that for those who want to believe those phenomenal experiences, That occur under the influence of psilocybin or LSD or DMT uh, you know or any of the serotonin 2a type uh, psychedelic drugs anyone who thinks that's due to an increase in brain activity will be shocked because in fact the scientific work using functional MRI and magnetoencephalography shows the brain going dark and the more Mm -hmm. exotic the experience that those people have and that's where you can actually compare Uh, certain features, transcendental features, like encountering souls of departed loved ones, uh, becoming one with the the loving force of God, things like that. The more extensive transcendental qualities of NDEs are not as well represented in the drug uh, users as they are in those who have spontaneous, profound spiritual experiences. But I do believe that they open a door to similar realms. Likewise, I would say the dreamscape, you know, where we go at night, uh similarly is uh uh, a realm even though we're used to thinking that is something that we forget very quickly in the morning light if we don't work hard to remember it but likewise you know many of the memories from our higher soul in between lives and life between lives are not meant to be here that's why if you're going to harvest memories of past lives past lives and children it's best to ask them between ages uh, two and six, because beyond that, those memories will start to disappear. There is programmed forgetting going on, uh, but we can use meditation, centering prayer, hypnosis, and other things to recover those memories. Uh, And this is how we become far more aware of our greater being and our higher soul.
0: No, absolutely. I agree. And, um, I meditate a lot and, uh, I used to use psychedelics more. I use them once in a while. And actually we've talked about it on our show. I used, I had severe OCD and depression and anxiety. And I was kind of a lost cause in terms of medically. Like I went to CBD therapy, t- tried all the different, uh, you know, Zoloft and Lexapro and all that and nothing worked. And I kind of reverted back to uh, psilocybin as a, as a last resort. And it actually helped reset my mind and allow me to do the work now where it's almost, Nominal, you know, once in a while I use my OCD more for positive gain, but, um, Karen, I wanted to touch on your work with, uh, sacred acoustics. Cause I, I do believe that light and sound are two underrepresented, uh, ways of healing, if you will, or, um, technology. Um, and, uh, I was on your uh, YouTube channel last night, checking your stuff out. I really like it a lot. Um, what, uh, How did you get into the sacred acoustics and um, what do you think in terms of the future of it and where it's going?
2: Well, I first got interested in sound when I was struggling with my own efforts to learn how to meditate. And I didn't really want to learn how to meditate. To me, that was something that monks did sitting in caves, you know, and it wasn't something I was really all that interested in because it seemed like a very spiritual practice. But I was interested in things like telepathy, animal communication, remote viewing, out of body experience, um, energy healing, all kinds of things like that where you really uh, learn how to work with that unseen energy. I was convinced that it existed in my mind, this kind of unseen world, but I wanted to experience it firsthand and Of course, Evan had this amazing near-death experience that came to him unbidden during a, a disease he was experiencing, but I wanted to cultivate it firsthand. So in my efforts to learn how to do these types of things, what I learned was meditation was very important. And meditation is really the foundation of all other types of exploration because what you're doing there basically is just learning to quiet the mind, those thoughts that are constantly going. You know, you mentioned OCD, that's an extreme form of it, you know, thoughts that are constantly coming at us. And I didn't have any sort of mental disorders, but when I would sit down to meditate and quiet the mind, all I had were these racing thoughts and it seemed like such a waste of time until I found sound. There's many techniques out there that you can uh, learn to meditate. Many of them involve watching the breath, potentially uh, maybe a little chanting or, or repeating a mantra. But none of that really worked for me because my thoughts continued. It was sound that worked. So sound like tuning forks or Tibetan brass bowls or crystal bowls, gongs, all of these types of sounds have this wah, wah, wah Mm -hmm. kind of monotonous, monotonous, repetitive sound. And what I learned is that wah, wah is actually a form of audio Brainwave entrainment. So anything that makes that sound is actually producing a binaural beat naturally. Those kind of bowls are doing this. But when you can create these kind of sounds very precisely with digital technology, you can have a lot more control over the sound and what it might be doing to the brain. And so brainwave entrainment is designed to bring the brain out of the beta state of awareness, which with an EEG is 12 to 30 hertz roughly. That's the electric signal coming out of the brain. But the brainwave entrainment will bring your brain down into the lower levels associated with delta, theta, and alpha. Theta is that meditative state, roughly four to seven hertz. And four hertz is this sort of magical border between awake and asleep. This is the hypnagogic state. And uh, I'm not sure if this is what uh, traditional kind of classic meditators are going for, but this hypnagogic state it's what really started to perform wonders for me and this brain entrainment can help achieve. And so this is that state where the body is profoundly relaxed, like you're going to sleep, but the mind is still a little bit aware. And so that's kind of like what happens when you're first waking up in the morning, um, you're, you're still relaxed, maybe remembering dream fragments if you're in a hotel or someone else's house, you don't remember where you are. This is the kind of state where you can really start to get in touch with the consciousness behind those rambling thoughts. And it's when I was able to identify with that consciousness behind the rambling thoughts that I discovered something really greater than the self that I am here and now. And so in terms of how I use these tones, I use them to explore, you know, my purpose of why I'm here. I used it to explore um, release of emotional traumas I had, even though I felt like an emotionally balanced person none of us is immune from these uh, little kind of traumas that happen to us in childhood. People telling us, oh, you're not good enough, or you can't do this. Any number of things can happen. Sometimes very, uh, very abusive things can happen. But even in well-meaning parental environments, our parents can say things to us that don't really make sense as children. And so we internalize them as something bad or something we should avoid. And these kind of things affect our ongoing beliefs throughout our lives. And so the tones helped me to release some of that and to realize who I really was behind all of that. And in the end, it is an essence of love that we're all made of. And by going through this process, eventually you can uncover this. And so in terms of the future of where all this is going, we're very encouraged many people use these tones just to focus um, gain more focus if they're studying maybe they use them to help get a better night's sleep others use them to process emotional traumas um, others have used them to great effect at uh, connecting with those unseen realms maybe with the soul of a departed loved one when you can get the mind out of the way You can really start to discover your own personal connection to these realms and uh, it's not necessary to be involved in a, a big tradition or have a guru or or through some religious tradition you can do this on your own last year we did a pilot study in a psychiatric practice in manhattan and our psychiatrist uh prescribed basically a certain set of tones to her patients And those who decided to follow the protocol actually experienced a 26% reduction in anxiety just after listening for a couple weeks. Now, these people had been in therapy for quite a while. And the therapy alone, the patients who did not incorporate the tones over the same period experienced a 7% reduction in anxiety. So adding the tones allowed people to make breakthroughs they had never made before. And we believe this is because they were able to get away from that talk therapy, just talking about their problems and really starting to reach what was underneath those problems. And as more of us can do this, whether it's using brainwave entrainment that we have or other types of means, um, EMDR is another technology, uh, uh, spiritual technology, I'll say, that helps people in a similar fashion move beyond the, the thinking mind that very often just gets in our way. So there's a lot of different ways to use these recordings. And really it just depends on your personal goal. But anytime you can get into that theta state of awareness is an opportunity to sort of recast your, uh, lifelong beliefs and how you approach the world.
0: No, absolutely. I find it uh, fascinating, um, Maurice and I are both musicians. Um, I don't really play in bands anymore, but I produce music with the show and different things. And uh, I actually started making my own binaural beats. Um, And when I meditate, I listen to the one that works for me is uh, 528 Hertz. Um, For some reason that just calms me. And I, like you said, I find that, It's almost like lucid dreaming it's like a state in between sleep but it's still a form of meditation because i'm not sleeping i'm very much uh conscious um and uh weird things start to happen for sure especially when you get deeper and closer to like an hour's time things really Mm -hmm. start to happen um in terms of sound um what you know we all have that high pitch ringing in our ear um like i said we've interviewed a lot of people that have done dmt before they go into that realm which they consider a higher realm. They hear this really high pitched frequency before they go in there. Um, do you think that there's some sort of correlation between, you know, when people talk about higher, lower frequencies and that kind of stuff that we really are with our senses, you know, kind of collecting all this data that's being shot at us at at, at all points. But do you think that there's some sort of correlation between the frequencies and, and how we experience consciousness and reality?
2: Well, there is a correlation. I would be hesitant to say that a higher pitched frequency represented a higher level of consciousness. i'm not sure it's quite that simple It's okay. interesting that it's interesting that you, through trial and error found that that five twenty eight hertz frequency did something for you, I wanna point out to your listeners that 528 is not the binaural. The binaural is actually a much smaller number associated with the brainwave states. The 528 we can actually hear and that's what we would call a carrier frequency that's carrying the binaural that's being delivered because our ear cannot hear four hertz. We can only hear starting at around 20 hertz and up and that 20 hertz to about 20,000 hertz is the human hearing range. But when you go into these spiritual experiences, sounds can occur. Everything is a vibration. And what because of our limited human ear, we only can hear 20 to 20,000, but there's many other frequencies out there that are affecting us in different ways. Now, every brain wave starts out differently. Um, We've learned recently that they're kind of like fingerprints. A brain wave state EEG in one person is completely unique as compared to all others. And so when we deliver, for example, a four hertz or whatever formula to the brain, everyone is starting from a different place. And so we'll respond a little differently. And so some people, when they hear delta, they'll immediately fall asleep. Others will hear delta and that will help them get into that hypnagogic state and not put them to sleep at all. And others might hear the higher frequencies of alpha and even get so relaxed that they simply fall asleep. And others, that would just keep them awake the whole time. So it is very important. It's wonderful that you've experimented with these different frequencies. We encourage all listeners to do that. There are many, many forms of binaural beats out there. There are apps that you can create your own binaural beat. You can say, oh, I want a five hertz with, uh, you know, rain in the background or surf or something like that. This is, very possible to do. I would point out that sacred acoustics formulas are much more complex than those type of simplistic apps. We are doing much more with our binaural beats by combining monaural beats to them in a form that we've called neural helix just to distinguish it from the other types of technologies. And so really the best way to learn how this, you know, is different than a normal Uh, standard binaural beat is to try it for yourself. And we do have a free download on our website at sacredacoustics.com. We are highly, highly uh, encouraging everyone to try something firsthand themselves. We can talk about this. It's very fun to talk about all the different philosophies and the different points of view. But until you have a direct experience, and it's wonderful that you have done that yourself, you've had them come unbidden, but it sounds like also you've been trying to cultivate them. Many people are motivated to do such things because of challenging health issues like yourself when traditional med- medical uh, Western medicine isn't quite working the way we're told it, it could work. Like taking a pill will you know, alter your chemistry and you'll be fine. And, and it doesn't work that way for all of us. And I don't want to poo poo medication in all instances because there, there may be situations where that is the, the smartest thing to do. But I believe we've swung to a very uh, extreme in our culture where any sort of mental disorder is first, you know, uh, treated with some type of chemical. And while they can be useful, as well as that, people need to be approaching their spiritual life. And by spiritual, I don't mean religious. By spiritual, I mean the recognition of that consciousness that we all have behind our thoughts. That is spiritual and spiritual has become to some people kind of a scary word in this. Oh, that means you believe in God. And this idea that belief in God is somehow some supernatural faith is a little interesting to me. I think because of the uh, religious dogma that has been rejected by so many of us in our culture, including myself, I rejected that Christian dogma as a young child. I, I didn't understand that, that that's how it could work. And I wanted to find out for myself and over time read all kinds of things. And until I had my personal experience of feeling a power greater than myself, of feeling something beyond the here and now, that's when I could start to say, well, maybe there is some type of force beyond here. And for me, I like to think of that as one step beyond me is my greater power, uh, my greater self my my self here in the physical body is very limited but when i can get quiet and feel an expanded version of myself that's one step closer to that god force that we all ultimately are connected to whether our mind wants to believe it or not when you start to experience it firsthand there's no denying
0: no i mean everything you just said resonated with me for sure and i agree with uh with that um and actually, to your point about the the miracle pill and just taking a pill and, um, you know, you're all better. Obviously, that's in my I case, that's I'm false. Like you, bullet. yeah, it, you know, in some cases, like you said, that might work for some people that are in a certain mind state that you need to pull them back a little bit. Or, um, I think of Xanax when people take Xanax, it's almost like a band aid. Yeah, it'll calm you down and make you go to sleep, but it's it's just a temporary fix. And you know, if you're looking at like the Hamilton scale and moving up and down anxiety um you know i think they say like a pill can only move you one or two points on the hamilton scale where a good night's sleep eating right exercise positivity like all that stuff moves you you know further up and down so uh, i agree with all that um do you think that um, with your you know in your book proof of heaven you talk about when you're you feel like you're in heaven and um all the chants and the, the the sounds and the songs have you guys gone back and forth about what was kind of going on you know in your near-death experience with sound or well, i
1: think uh, yeah we have actually that's been a, a crucial part of it and it was uh, based on the discussion we had a few minutes ago i wanted to clarify some points about that people often ask us well Uh, are these sounds of sacred acoustics, are they similar to the sounds you heard in your journey? Because, you know, in Proof of Heaven, I discussed how important sound was. Sound, the notes of a musical melody were what ushered me up from that primitive earthworm eye view where everything began up into that brilliant ultra-real gateway valley. Likewise, uh in that gateway valley uh even though it had many earth-like features it was also very strongly spiritual because all the joy and festivity that was manifest there was uh, because of uh the chants and anthems and hymns that were thundering through me from these swooping uh formations of angelic uh, beings up above uh and then of course that served as a portal to higher levels, all the way out to the core realm, to infinite oneness with that divine force of healing. Uh, but all in the setting where that infinite uh, space throughout all of eternity was filled with the sound of Om, and this uh, incredibly luscious, you are home feeling of comfort, uh, love and bliss. Uh, That's, of course, what near-death experiencers try to put into words. It's what they bring back to this world that, of course, for them (laughs) is so comforting so that they never have anything to fear about death but important to point out is in those realms sound is not conveyed to our ears by sound waves so that sound can be far far greater more powerful more uh, comprehensive and abundant more ideal and pure Uh, in many ways that realm those spiritual realms uh, that we're talking about are, are similar to Plato's world of forms. They're basically a world of ideals for our souls. And that's where we reunite with our higher soul when we die and leave the physical body, reunite with the souls of departed loved ones. Uh, but a lot of the sound and power of that experience is not in the limited form of sound in this four dimensional space time. And that's the point I'm trying to make is that something like sacred acoustics does far better than just duplicate the sounds that I heard on my journey because they open the doors and allow you to traverse the veil. Every soul can go into those realms and have full access uh, to the the kind of music and sound that is far beyond anything that could ever be formed up in our four dimensional space time. And that's why personal experience, going within, exploring consciousness yourself is absolutely essential. The only other point I'd like to make uh, in the discussion right now is uh, kind of along the lines of what we're just talking about in terms of uh, health issues and taking pills, um, a reminder that medical science has honored placebo effect for more than 60 Mm -hmm. years. Placebo effect is simply acknowledgement among medical scientists that a patient's belief can often be sufficient for them to get better. And this is not just about a uh, you know sugar pill curing a headache. If you go to the Institute of Noetic Sciences website, put in the search term spontaneous remission, spontaneous regression, mm-hmm. you'll find a book that they published in the mid 1990s on more than 3,500 cases of spontaneous regression or remission of cancers, of advanced infections, congenital deformities, et cetera. Extraordinary cases of healing that would be viewed as miraculous in the modern Western world, except they really happen. These have been factually documented. And what they demonstrate is the power of mind over matter. That's what this entire discussion is about, is does matter create mind? You know, conventional science would try and pretend that the physical brain creates consciousness or does mind truly exist in its own right and have a lot of power in manifesting free will in our emerging reality? That is what Karen and I talk about in Living in a Mindful Universe. I would also encourage your listeners to participate in a completely free 33-day email course at ebanalexander.com. As soon as you get to ebanalexander.com, a little banner wiggles in your face. Your free 33-day journey into the heart of consciousness. It includes four sacred acoustics titles, all for free. Highly encourage people to uh, take that free course.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry,
1: friends. More than 7,000 people around the world have taken it. Uh, It has translate buttons there. So all languages can participate and all these people are helping each other. And it's very rewarding to see how that course, this is all Karen's brainchild. She came up with the idea for this course and it was an absolutely brilliant move to give this out to the world as a gift. But it helps to share a lot of this bigger knowledge about the nature of consciousness and the emerging scientific revolution that frees the human spirit
0: no absolutely and uh, i am signed up for that i think everybody should check it out uh that's how i uh got into the sacred acoustic stuff and i actually found it uh pretty enjoyable um but back to your point yeah i mean i I think that uh when you look at you brought up plato i think we live in plato's cave (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know like i think that right now we're all stuck in this one form of what we think reality and consciousness is and one day we're all going to wake up and realize that was just part of it, you know? Um, But uh, when you, like you said before that, you know, there's always going to be critics and, and, and people, you know, poo pooing or this and that, but do you look at anybody else's work that, you know, identifies with things that you've experienced, whether it be, I don't know if you've ever looked into like biocentrism from Robert Lanza or Tom Campbell's, my big toe. Is there some other theory of everything or somebody else's work that's kind of resonated with your uh, uh, experiences Well,
1: oh, yeah I think there is a lot of interesting work going on there um, what I would do actually for those especially who are interested in quantum connection and trying to understand why quantum physics has anything to do with this uh, that's something that we do explain a lot in our book living in a mindful universe um, and Uh, I would say a lot of my thinking on that was coming together right around the time that book was published. So I've actually moved beyond a lot of those points. But the place that I would steer people who have a strong scientific interest is the work of Bernardo Castro. He's a a colleague of ours. He is uh, an endorser of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. He works at CERN. He's uh, a scientist of uh, very high caliber, very brilliant man. We've communicated with him on uh, a number of features around this. In fact, he commented on my uh, story and proof of heaven and all that in some of his books. Uh, But he recently has uh, published a book called The Idea of the World. And I think this book goes a lot further than anything else I've seen to really connect the dots to help people see why quantum physics and really our position that Karen and I argue in Living in a Mindful Universe that the, the ultimate solution from the philosophical standpoint is metaphysical or ontological idealism. The notion that the universe is fundamentally mental and that human beings, by having a conscious aspect of our existence, Uh, can participate in that fundamentally crucial mental aspect of the universe. Now the mental aspect of the universe is something that I think a lot of quantum physicists have grown comfortable with over the last few decades. For example, um, there was an essay in Nature in the scientific journal Nature in 2005 by uh, I think it's Robert Kahn Henry, uh, who was the head of astrophysics at uh, Johns Hopkins. A one page essay on the mental A universe that makes it very clear that modern quantum physics implies a top-down organization or a mental organization uh, that completely, when you look at our primordial mind hypothesis in in the book Living in a Mindful Universe, you start to realize how there are worldviews who can fully incorporate notions of afterlife and reincarnation uh, by... Uh, looking at this, and I would say that uh, Bernardo's take on the quantum physics aspect is one of the most modern, and uh, he takes Carlo Ravelli's interpretation of the measurement paradox in quantum physics and really runs with it. It's a very powerful uh, work that I think uh, does a tremendous job towards uh, helping to take us to the next level because I've come to realize very fully the mental nature of the universe and the fact that, uh, how the mental can generate the entire physical. All the physical world emerges from the mental and this is what returns power of free will to human beings. This is what explains how a spontaneous regression of cancers and things like that can occur because we have that kind of tremendous power once we believe and come to recognize those connections of our conscious awareness with this universe, with our ability to influence emerging events of the universe. And that's where the meditation, a lot of what Karen and I teach in our workshops, I think greatly empowers people to do exactly that.
0: Yeah, I'm, uh, I added. Um living in a mindful universe to my audible. So I'm, I'm excited to check that out um, in terms of where you guys see your research going from here. Um, you guys, like you said, you're obviously giving lectures and, and seminars and different stuff. Um, are you guys working on another book or is there some, um, you know, is there some uh, evolution here of this or are you guys just kind of chipping away and seeing if anything kind of comes to the surface from what you guys are doing now?
2: Well, we have another pilot study we're working on this summer in a hospice center. So we're going to be working with um, the caregivers to measure their levels of anxiety with using sacred acoustics recordings. But the most fascinating is that we're going to be evaluating what happens at end of life. So there's many things that happen. People have deathbed visions, terminal lucidity, um, you know, starting to see the souls of departed loved ones and all kinds of things can happen shared crossings, um, the hospice workers who are right there with those patients often have these type of shared experiences. And so there aren't too many people out there who are actually documenting these things. One of them is uh, William Peters of Shared Crossing Project out in California is very busy documenting all kinds of end-of-life phenomenon. So we hope to add to that body of literature to really start to make people understand that death is not something to be feared, but is a transition to another form of existence. And this type of research we think will help contribute to not only people learning how to get more relaxed and deal with their anxiety, but also big answers to questions about what happens when we die.
0: Absolutely. Uh, We've had uh, Penny Sartori on our show before. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. She's She's done experiments with that where she's tried to set up things where when people go out of body, are they able to see, Uh, the, 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 whatever she set up in the, uh, the room Mm. and, and different things. But, uh, I think that's fascinating. And actually Maurice done, you had a family member pass away where they were seeing other family members as they were going through that process. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, the night before they, well, it was like probably the night that they were passing and they said that, uh, the people that were around her said that she was talking to loved ones and stuff like that. So definitely an interesting an interesting Avenue it, it, it is
1: that I mean I, I would simply add I just uh, had my own personal experience my mother who was 99 years old uh, passed over in early April and I was uh, my three sisters and I were at the bedside that whole last night it was an uh, absolutely magical experience the one of the most extraordinary things is uh, she had some um, kind of visions uh, in the nights leading up to that where she said that people had come into her apartment kind of changed out the paintings and the furniture that it was no longer hers. And of course, some people might be treated to say, "Oh, that's a hallucination. But in fact, I've been through this enough with so many other people to realize, no, I think that was truly her witnessing of the fact that she had one foot in both worlds. And then it turned out that uh, the night before or two nights before she actually passed over, Uh, She got up at 2.30 in the morning when she spent the whole day basically unresponsive. And she uh, was up at 2.30, very kind of excited and animated. She called her nurse to the bedside. She said, my mother's here. My mother's here. I've got to call my children. And uh, because she was experiencing that. And even though the, the nurse did not see the spirit of her mother there, I've been through all this enough to realize her mother's soul was truly there. That's what she was witnessing. Um, and so these kind of things, I, I believe, can also be enhanced using sacred acoustics, kind of sound uh, in the in the healthcare workers as well as in patient and family members. I believe can help thin that veil so that we open the door to more shared experiences, uh, shared death experiences that Karen mentioned just a few minutes ago, especially the work of of William Peters, the Shared Crossing Project out in Santa Barbara. Um, Those are very important. These are like near-death experiences. I heard many of them from my audiences for years. I had no idea what to make of them until I read Raymond Moody's uh, book, Glimpses of Eternity that came out, I believe in 2011. Uh, That book is all about shared death experiences. And these happen not only to family members and loved ones, and they can You can either be at the bedside or 3000 miles away. It basically means when your loved one is leaving this world, their soul comes through you and makes you aware that they're leaving this world and expresses that love and kindness. And sometimes the bystander soul goes along. That's when you have a true shared death experience. Uh, The bystander soul, uh, and this can also occur with healthcare workers, goes along even to the point of witnessing a life review in the departing soul before that bystander soul comes back to this world. Uh, And when I started hearing those kind of stories from people, uh, they completely defy that simplistic nonsense of conventional science, trying to explain away near-death experiences by saying, oh, well, it's a decreased oxygen tension or uh, too much carbon dioxide in the blood or something of somebody Mm -hmm. who's dying, because these are happening in people who are perfectly healthy. You know a shared death experience uh, usually happens in someone who's quite healthy and you don't have any of those kind of altered oxygen tension or co2 arguments to try and explain it away. Uh, so shared crossings are very powerful that's something we want to look at in this uh, protocol project that uh, Karen was talking about as well as the terminal lucidity which is probably a a kind of a lesser form of shared crossing where people come back and and show this incredible lucidity and ability of memory and communication often in a setting where they haven't said a meaningful word or phrase in weeks or months. That's why they call it terminal lucidity.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, and you know, you, your, your hard scientists, uh, an atheist will say, Oh, You know this is just a process of your brain shutting down and it's endogenous chemicals and um you know it's all figment of the imagination um but we all believe in evolution right so if we believe in evolution why would that occur you know and why would it only occur for people that are um either bedridden or so you know like there's a lot of people that get in accidents that don't have these experiences like that so i i i I like to think that um you know, there's there's obviously more to it, and I believe there's more to it, but it just it seems like people just want to put that out there that it's just a figment of the imagination or an endogenous chemical release or, or something along those lines uh, when they haven't even really researched it or they've read. Briefly on it, and they're, you know, like I can't stand listening to Sam Harris talk about it. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's you know, it's like your <laughs> Brian Cox's, your Sam Harris is just these Whoa. very re- reductionist, materialist. Um, they're trying their best. No, that's, no, and we have had trouble with this before by coma,
1: you know, although I, the logic behind it, the evidence is overwhelming, right? But, but um, that's
2: the problem right there. You mentioned Sean Carroll earlier, and I'd like to call him out on this personally because ooh. he. Claims to have something to say uh, authoritatively about near-death experiences, but in the same mouth, he'll tell you that he's never really read the research that exists about them. So the fact that you just made is so true that they don't even look at the research and yet they act like they're authorities on it. In fact, in his book, The Big Picture, Sean Carroll references Brian Malarkey. Oh, Alex Alex Malarkey. Alex Malarkey, Malarkey a boy who recorded an NDE and then later recounted it. And so because uh, Alex Malarkey admitted supposedly that he lied about his near-death experience, to Sean Carroll that meant that all near-death experiencers must be lying. And he writes this in his book, The Big Big Picture. Picture. (laughs) So he's on record (laughs) as saying that all near-death experiencers must be lying because this child admitted that he did and so shame on you Sean Carroll right. for not looking at the vast amount of evidence that's out there and just dismissing it out of hand. He actually says that respectable respectable people don't believe in this sort of thing and uh, that's really quite a shame that Sean you have not looked at that literature and really reviewed the uh, nature of it.
1: It reminds me of Jessica Utt's statement. She Uh, Jessica Utz is a renowned statistician. Uh, She was the head of the American Statistical Society uh, in the year, I think, 2015. She gave a presidential address to more more than 6,000 statisticians who attended that scientific meeting, Uh, and she made it very clear she had worked for years with people doing parapsychological work, especially assessing remote viewing, Mm -hmm. psychic spy programs, and for her as a scientist as a statistician the data is overwhelming for the reality of remote viewing and yet she said that some of her scientific colleagues if she asked them well you know do you believe in this they'd say no i don't even waste my time reading that stuff and and she points out that's about as anti-scientific or pseudo-scientific as you can get So that's like uh, Sam Harris or uh, Sean Carroll, who's not even reading that literature, but pretending they know enough to know that it's just bunk. And that's where they get very misleading until you start investigating this, you really don't have an opinion on it. And yet they pretend they're so smart. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the whole, it should be no surprise that the scientific community that studied materialism, when you study the material world, don't be surprised at kind of concluding that uh, you think everything occurs in the material world. But then when you hit those absolute dead ends, like the functional MRI and magnetoencephalography of the brains of people on psychedelic drugs like psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, etc., cetera, and you find that the brain goes dark Hey, that's scientific evidence, but it's leading away from the metaphysical assumption you have that the physical world is all that exists and that uh, somehow you can explain all of mental experiences, something going on in the brain. We know that is not true. Modern neuroscientists know Uh, I would say many that I communicate with at least that the brain does not create consciousness at all. Consciousness is a much bigger phenomenon that demands a much bigger theater of explanation. That's what we're working on.
0: No. And I I actually love all that. And uh, it rings true. And like I said, we've um, you know, with you were talking about remote viewing and you know, you look at the work of, you know, Rupert Sheldrick and Dean Radin and all those guys, and they're doing great stuff, trying to actually scientifically prove what we think is unprovable. Um, So, you know, I think that that's a step in the right direction. And obviously your guys work with near death experiences and uh, acoustics and sound and stuff. And I think that's super important. Um, Do you think that, uh, we're going to find out here in, 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 the next 10, 15 years, you know, like I, I feel like there's a, a paradigm shift happening, you know, like the philosophy of science, um, you know, a scientific revolution happens every once in a while where there's so much data, so much evidence that bottles up that a paradigm shift happens and it's almost undeniable. Do you feel like that's occurring sometime in the near future? Or do you think we're well, on the precipice to that?
1: I'll tell you, I love that quote from Nikola Tesla. Oh, yeah. and those who are familiar with physics and the history of science in the 20th century will certainly know who tesla was we basically can ascribe all of our modern electrically powered world to the work of tesla he did an incredible work in alternating current and in power transmission and all of that and as a brilliant scientist and investigator in the mid-20th century he said the following when science begins to investigate non-physical phenomena They will discover more in the first decade of that exploration than in all the previous history of science, and I believe we're getting very close to that point of beginning that incredible decade of discovery of the non-physical. I believe that there are plenty of scientists around the world. I would steer your listeners who have any doubts about this, go to GalileoCommission.org. I am one of the more than 100 scientific advisors to the Galileo Commission. Uh, Karen and I were over in London back in November of 2018, helping support the launch of the Galileo Commission report. Uh, If you read that free report online, it will give you a tremendous amount of information. Harold Wallach put all that together with the help of these hundred scientific advisors, and it really points uh, the avenue to the future. And the more we can get this modern scientific view of the nature of reality out to this world, because it's fully quantum in nature, fully uh, accepts the oneness that we all share through consciousness. uh, And also the power that we have as individual sentient beings to manifest the highest world of our dreams. Once we escape uh, the clutches of that silly little ego and the little linguistic voice in our head, trying to pretend it is who we are. Uh, And this is something Karen and I uh, foster in our workshops and in our personal lives and our daily meditations is developing that relationship with that higher soul and when you realize that our higher souls are all interconnected and part of that god force and that that acknowledges that we're all bound together through forces of love kindness compassion and mercy we come to see that this world will become a far kinder gentler and more harmonious place
0: uh, i beautifully said i couldn't agree more uh and just yeah, one more I mean, question was, we'll... go ahead Maisie. go ahead no go ahead I was going to say my uh, my two cents. It's like you know, conventional sciences has led us to this point, but I think it's time we got to start thinking outside the box to open up some of these other mysteries.
1: I agree, and and really, you know, this is all about the science. This is about the natural world. As much as some people will try and pretend, oh no, that's just the supernatural. That's woo woo nonsense. Bottom line is, if you want to understand consciousness which is truly the only thing any human being has ever known is the inside of their own consciousness, then you need to pursue the modern scientific study of consciousness. That's what we're talking about. This is not about woo woo and about nonsense. This is about the cutting edges of scientific investigation into the nature of reality.
2: Now there's another way to put that because I'm a girl and I like to point out that masculine energy has been ruling the world. And that is that materialist attitude that, that only what we can see, only the external world is important, and the rest is just an illusion well that's really dissing the internal world and that's the feminine energy the unseen world is feminine energy and and many of us are walking around uh, even as women you know living this masculine way of of being. And the more of us who can start really paying attention to our internal world that will bring that external world into balance. And uh, any spiritual person out there who's taken the time to really go in and develop their internal world will tell you that in the process of focusing on the internal world, the external world seems to shift into place without much effort at all and perhaps you've had that experience as well when you go within and you start to be calm inside the outside world seems to shift and change and so it really behooves all of us to kind of bring that masculine feminine energy back into balance and when it's in balance the external and internal world have equal importance and uh, it's not to diminish the external world as a complete illusion that we shouldn't pay attention to because that would put us right back into an unbalanced situation. So that's just another way to kind of couch this same uh, issue that we're discussing. And, and
1: another point I'd like to add to that is is remember the way we're looking at it when we see mind as universal and that we're all sharing one mind. When we talk about going within, you know meditation going within we're really talking about going out into the universe as you realize you're just basically traversing the veil the veil of apparent separation uh that gives your little ego and that little linguistic voice in your head this little confined space that it pretends is all to itself but as we realize the scientific evidence for uh uh you know, telepathy and things like that, we start to realize and remote viewing all the evidence that non-local consciousness is real, we start to realize we're only sharing the one mind. So going within consciousness is actually going out to the universe, uh, acknowledging basically that it's never been anything more than an internal model, but that internal model includes the entire universe.
0: Noah, yeah, I definitely feel that when I meditate for sure. Um, one more question and we'll let you guys get out of here. Um Evan I I just wanted to when you were you know when you had your near-death experience and you were in this altered state whether it be heaven or another dimension or whatever was going on um, did you feel and and I know you explain a little bit in your book but did you feel like yourself or was it a different version of yourself because I know when people think about dying, do they think, oh, am I still me? Am I another version of me? Am I part of me? Is the essence of me still there? Um, what did it feel like in those terms?
1: I would say it's a much more authentic version of self. Although in my case, uh, you know, an anomaly of my journey was the fact that I was amnesic, mm-hmm. that I did not remember. I had no words or language. And all during the coma experience, I had no memory of Evan Alexander's existence on earth. Um, and that tabula rasa or empty slate, I think was absolutely a crucial, uh, we explain all that in the book, living in a mindful universe where, you know, years later, I came to a much deeper understanding of it all, especially the absence of my father. He had passed over four years before my coma, and yet he was nowhere to be seen in the coma experience. And also, of course, the identity of that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing. That's my favorite part
0: of the book that, that, uh the connection there between not knowing your, your blood sister and, right. um, and then finding out later that the person that you were experiencing, uh, in the near death experience was actually this, this person. And, and you right. had no idea that, that if that's not a synchronicity, I mean, I don't know. What that
1: was. was a huge, gigantic, uh, you know, kind of mind awakener for me to, uh, get that kind of realization. That's what kind of sent me on this journey. Uh, But I I had to discover, you know, why this absence of my father, and it had a lot to do with that amnesia and about not being fooled into uh, believing what my pre-coma, you know, reductive materialist, neuroscientific self would have been fooled into if my father had been the guide. I might have defaulted into, oh, well, you see who you want to see on the way out. And that's why, in retrospect, it had to be someone who I really had no way of of recognizing other than in this bigger context of my life journey and my adoption and all of that Uh, and that's why her identity was such a big shocker four months after my coma
2: but when people are concerned about do they retain their personal identity the vast majority of evidence is yes
1: you do throughout that entire journey i just needed this for a specific lesson For someone interested in neuroscience, brain and mind, memory, all of that, because my journey showed me very clearly, not only is consciousness not created by the brain, uh, the brain acts more to restrict and limit and dumb down anything that we call consciousness, Uh, but also memories are not stored there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about that in detail in Living in the Universe, one of the biggest nails in the coffin of materialist neuroscience but it's it's a fact and that's where we're headed with this is memory and experience don't even come from within the brain they are simply filtered in allowed into our awareness by the uh, quantum states of the brain
0: yeah i mean you look at the ancient egyptians they might have had us with the ba and the ka and the understanding of the afterlife and right, everything.
1: exactly um but, <laughs> yeah
0: but uh Everybody check out uh, Dr. Eben Alexander's books and um, go to the website, sacred acoustics. We're going to have all the links below, but yeah, proof of heaven map of heaven. And Living in a Mindful Universe, which I'm going to start on Audible this week. I'm looking forward to it. And um, thank you both for coming on. And uh, this has been super enlightening. And I look forward to Amazing. checking out your uh, future research and everything. So thank you guys for coming on.
1: Okay. Well, Mike and Maurice, thank thanks you. so much for having us. Great talking with you. We'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Have a good one. You too.